the Health Beat, a podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Allie Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. Today, our episode features medical students talking about their experiences during the pandemic and how it's changed their education. A lot of the patients couldn't hear us through our masks, couldn't tell who we were in our masks, and couldn't tell that we were the same people taking care of them every single day. It is a strong responsibility for um, us as future physicians and then also current physicians to be able to share accurate information, especially during this time when we have so many different competing sources of information. It's especially us first-year medical students where you're sort of starting from scratch. <laughs> um, the whole class hasn't been together ever. In general, I'm just, I'm thinking on a bigger level about medicine than I was last year. It has created a lot of ways that we, we're thinking outside of the box of like how we can creatively educate students so that we're more engaged, even if we're not in person. But first, let's talk about some recent news. A big part of the news recently was that the FDA granted emergency use authorization for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine this past Friday on December 11th. Wow. Yeah. Almost 3 million doses were packed with dry ice to maintain that special low temperature for the vaccine on Sunday morning, December 13th. And the trucks left the Pfizer plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to be delivered to hundreds of distribution centers in all 50 states. So this vaccine process is starting to get rolled out. And the FDA is also planning to discuss emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine this week on December 17th. And just as a reminder, these are both mRNA vaccines, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. We discussed all about these vaccine trials and what an mRNA uh, vaccine is and everything on our last podcast episode, if you have any questions about those. So, Ali, who is going to get the vaccine first? Yeah, so the CDC Advisory Committee considered four groups to possibly recommend an early COVID-19 vaccination if there is limited supply. And one group is healthcare personnel, so anyone who's at increased risk because they're working in the hospital and caring for patients. The second group is workers that are in essential or critical industries, and these include transportation, food industry, education, and law enforcement, because those people need to do their jobs that put them at increased risk for contracting COVID. The next group is people that are higher risk for severe COVID-19 illness due to underlying medical conditions. And these could include conditions such as chronic kidney disease, um, COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, certain heart diseases. And then the final group is people over 65 years and older, because we know that these individuals are at increased risk. So after all this consideration, the CDC panel advised that healthcare workers and nursing home residents receive the vaccine first. And this will likely happen in December and January because there are two doses that are necessary for both vaccines. Likely in February and March, individuals that are over 65, as well as healthcare workers and those with medical conditions, putting them at higher risk will get the vaccine. Then later, in April through May, depending on what state you're in, the vaccine will likely be available to the rest of the public. This is definitely very exciting, uplifting news during this time. But there has been a lot of misinformation about the vaccine that's come out. There's a lot of skepticism about the vaccine. And we just want to reinforce that the 
FDA and an independent panel reviews vaccine results. And as we said in our last episode, these agencies really wouldn't put out a vaccine unless they believed it to be safe and effective with the data they have. And related to that, as medical students, we're all thinking about whether we should get the vaccine. And, you know, I definitely want to get the vaccine. What about you, Allie? Oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. I think when weighing all of the data, I'm excited to get the vaccine and excited to protect myself and others from the spread because that's a major concern that I've been having over the past nine months. Yeah, and we'll definitely be learning more about the vaccine as you know more people get vaccinated and more data comes out. But I think this is a really exciting first step. And as I mentioned, depending on your institution, medical students might also be one of the first people to get the vaccine. And as medical students, we do participate in the healthcare delivery system in the hospital and a lot of times are interacting with patients that either have COVID, depending on the institution, or have suspected COVID. And so it's valid to consider medical students as part of this early priority group for getting the vaccine. Kind of going off of that, so much has changed for medical students over the past nine months since the pandemic began. We're at this intersection between our education and a future career in healthcare. It's changed a lot about how our education is realistically delivered and how we're able to learn safely and has really caused us to think a lot about the role of physician and how we want to go about the rest of our careers as leaders in medicine. And so today, the remainder of our episode, we'll be talking to medical students at Johns Hopkins across all years about how the pandemic has changed their experience in medical school. Yeah, these are some of our classmates and friends who have a lot of great insight from first year to fourth year of medical school about how things have changed for them. So let's turn it over to them now. Hi, everyone. My name is Rohan Panaparambo, and I'm a second year medical student at Johns Hopkins. Uh, For today's episode on medical education in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have assembled this amazing panel of four Hopkins medical students spanning all four years of the medical curriculum. And I'm really happy to introduce them here. First up, we have Terrence Zoe, who is a first-year student. Hi there, I'm Terrence. I'm a first-year medical student um, at Johns Hopkins. I am from the West Coast, um, from Los Angeles, and wanted to hop on the podcast to just sort of share my experience starting medical school during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and I use the pronouns he, him, and his. Thank you, Terrence. Uh, Next, we have Harry Paul, who's my classmate, a second-year student. Rohan, great to be with you. My name is Harry. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a second-year MD-PhD student at Hopkins. I went to Tufts University for undergrad. I'm originally from Long Island, New York, which is where I'm holed up right now, and uh, I really think that you know, med ed is particularly interesting to me because I think, you know, I was a patient for a long time before I decided to enter medicine. And I think that, you know, med, med school and medical education determines like how, not just like how good a physician is, but also just like how they think about medicine and how they interact with both patients and peers. And so I'm really interested in like that, that the hidden curriculum and what norms we create especially during a pandemic. Yeah, thank you so much, Harry. 
Uh, next, we have Jenny Chen, who's a third year student. Hi, everyone. Uh, Rohan, thanks for having us on. Uh, my name is Jenny, third year medical student. I am from the Bay Area in Northern California. Um, and in terms of my interest in medical education, um, so for me, I think something that's been interesting with the timing is that I've come into the clinical rotations at a time where the pandemic is in full swing. So I think it's a really interesting time to be working with patients um, and also to be incorporating additional uh, technologies and social media and other media outlets as well to help provide patient care um, and also increase our understanding of the virus, but also other diseases. That's great. Thanks, Jenny. And then last but not least, we have Lucy Nam, who's a fourth year. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks, Rohan, for having us as well. Uh, my name's Lucy Nam. I'm a fourth year. I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and I'm applying into general surgery this year. I'm interested in surgical innovation and patient education. I'm also one of the founders of COVID Up to Date, which is our social media campaign, kind of the umbrella of this podcast. Uh, and because of that, I care a lot about combating misinformation about COVID um, and super excited to be on this podcast. All right. Thank you, Lucy. So yeah, once again, thanks to all our panelists, Terrence, Harry, Jenny, and Lucy for uh, being on the show today. Uh, I think we will all love to learn from your experiences. So um, medical school, uh, as we're all very familiar with, goes, goes through several transitions across the four years. And so I was wondering if each of you could share a little bit about what has changed in the current stage of your education and how does it sort of compare to what you might've been expecting? Sure. So I think during a normal non-COVID time, first year looks a lot like just going to class with your classmates, perhaps staying on campus um, and like studying in, in group study rooms, hanging out with your friends in like the common areas. Um, there'd be student group events and school-wide activities. Um, but right now, of course, there haven't hasn't really been many uh, in-person events at all. The majority of all of our classes are online and virtual. Um, and so right now we're having mostly asynchronous lectures, which is nice because it gives us flexibility of like sort of when we want to schedule um, our lecture watching time. Um, but we also have like synchronous Zoom sessions, which has been um, good to like meet and to interact with classmates. Um, I would say right now it's been a little different just because we haven't been able to do too many student group activities, especially the ones that volunteer in Baltimore, just because there aren't, um, we can't be in person. Um, so it's diff different from what I was expecting for my first year, but that being said, I'm, I'm still very thankful to be in medical school and like I'm thankful for the um, School of Medicine leadership that has been able to make this switch from um, like in person to, to virtual pretty quickly. Um, I think there, there have been bumps along the road, but I still think I'm learning everything that I should be learning in my first year. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what it was like to actually transition, sort of, you know, maybe like choose the med school you wanted to go to, learn about the city, the school, meet roommates potentially, and then move in and get oriented without really getting the traditional like in-person experiences? Yeah, that was pretty different. Um, right around when the COVID pandemic started was when we would have second look weekends. And so many of like those are basically all canceled for us. And so um, we did virtual second looks with many of the medical schools. And, and it was different not being able to go to the medical schools and see the school sort of after you have applied and to explore the city more. 
um, now that you sort of have more time and are thinking about what the next four years of your life are going to look like. And so I think um, I had a lot of phone calls with current students while I was trying to choose which medical school. Uh, and, and so that was mostly um, how I sort of ended up choosing Hopkins. I would say the, the move-in process um, was different as well. <laughs> I think um, sort of um, it was a lot of just like asking people where, where, where they were going to live. Um, we had a roommate finder spreadsheet. And, and I think Harry Paul, you were on the um, second look committee for um, Hopkins. And so like, you know, learning about Hopkins and, and, and all that through the second look committee and asking second years for, um, for help was, was, um, was important. Harry, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your experiences as a second year? Yeah, I mean, I'll, not to be dramatic, but I think, you know, there's been a lot less of the good and a lot more of the bad just in general in medicine. I mean, I think, you know, I had an amazing first year. I was like thriving and finding projects and loved my friends and it was learning so, so much. And it just feels right now like everything is kind of muted for everyone. You know, you classes recorded. I was a, you know, a, a strong proponent of in-person class. You know, you get to know your the professors of each block a lot less. There's less shadowing telehealth visits while, you know, incredibly important to have. It's harder to get to know your patients. It's harder to form connections. I, you know, I'm constantly having, you know, patients who don't know how to get onto the telehealth platform and the connection is bad. And it just, it, it's a ton of extra load that, that kind of takes up the space. And, you know, there was, there was certainly burnout uh, and stress and just um, medicine was not the prettiest place before, but I think now things are, are really being exposed even more so just as, as where the faults are. But I think that brings with it a certain um, a certain amount of inspiration or a certain amount of like work to do because we're kind of seeing what where the problems are and what we need to really work on. And so I think I'm in general I'm just I'm thinking on a bigger level about medicine than I was last year. You know, it's certainly harder, um, but I just I want everyone to be okay. You know, I want my professors to be okay, my friends to be okay. Um, you know, it was very stressful to transition from the the amazing, you know, second look in person that we had planned to something virtual and, and to, you know, get to know students that couldn't come. You know, I remember my second looks were really where I felt like I learned what med school was about, right? It wasn't from interviews and it wasn't really even necessarily from orientation. I think I learned about medical school by going to different medical schools for a second look. And so, you know, our committee felt like we had really a huge responsibility to the next generation of physicians to try to give them some of that. But, you know, it's, you're fighting a losing battle. And now it's, you know, it's interesting to be now about to transition to the wards because, most of preclinical has been kind of, since COVID has been kind of at home, you know, I'm high risk. So I've been, you know, really isolating since the beginning and protecting myself and, 
and those around me. And now it's like, well, you're going to be in the hospital every day, you know? So that's, it's just, it's different to, to not even see how much medicine has changed since COVID, but also how different it is depending on where you are in the, in the cycle. Yeah. Thank you, Harry. And I love that you brought up the interviews in second books. I mean, I met you at a couple of interviews and so you're just one of the many awesome people I met at the interviews. And I think it's kind of sad that we don't get that. Uh, (laughs) But enough about me. Let's move on to uh, Jenny, who as a third year definitely has a little bit of a different med school view compared to the first and second years. Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, I was coming into clinical rotations basically right when the pandemic took off. Um, It's almost funny looking back now, uh, a lot of us went home or were on vacation for two weeks in March of 2020, and two weeks became three and a half months. So um, for us, we uh, had a little bit of a transition, um, at which point we had just uh, done our transition to the awards class in February prior to going to spring break. So we were learning how to put in IVs, learning how to do rounding, uh, use the electronic health uh, medical record system that we have here at Hopkins, things like that. And so we were really ready to go and fired up about starting rotations finally after all of the preclinical work we did for the past year and a half. But um, things, of course, uh, with the hospital systems, a lot of which were being overwhelmed and Hopkins itself also was working through sort of how we can best provide patient care in a safe way and also keep our staff and our students responsible and and safe as well. So we were off of rotations for about three and a half months um, while this is all getting figured out, both at uh, Hopkins and then also across the country. So with the three and a half months, uh, thankfully our professors were really awesome in getting a lot of uh, clinical electives transitioned to online formats. So, for example, we were able to do a couple of electives like radiology, surgical pathology, and many others also uh, in this virtual format while in-person clinical electives were still in the works. Um, But thankfully, by July, uh, a lot of the students in my year and also in the year above me in Lucy's year were able to come back to the wards and gradually transition back to a more or less normal schedule. But that being said, some major changes did happen for us here at Hopkins, the first being the clinical rotations being shortened in format by about 25%. So whereas our main clinical core rotations were usually eight weeks in the past, now they're about six weeks. And then same thing for other uh, clinical electives being shortened in format from four to three weeks. So that was definitely a shift for us. Um, Also with the changing in the grading scale. So uh, just to talk quickly about the grading at Hopkins for our Preclinical work, this is a typically pass-fail for uh, each of our um, classes in the basic sciences prior to starting on the rotations. And then for clinical rotations, uh, we have a tiered grading scale, honors, high pass, pass-fail. But um, in light of the pandemic and the additional stressors on students as well as their families, um, and in terms of looking at sort of the going forward on how the administration could best support students. There was a great effort uh, put into uh, on the part of the administration, as well as in collaboration with our student Senate, uh, and also an effort from the students as well to change the grading structure to account for the shifting nature of the pandemic as we learn more about the disease and more about how this would affect clinical education. So the rotations then became PASCA, which is definitely, but, um, a lot of uh, taking a lot of weight off of our shoulder, I'd say, 
for sure, definitely, um, especially with the shortened format of the, the clinical rotation. So um, I've definitely been um, happy to have that additional leeway when it comes to um, my studying for the shelf exams. And then also when it comes to uh, being able to focus on more direct patient care uh, while we have the shortened time on the rotations. Um, so I think for me, those are the major changes that I've seen so far. Um, a couple other components have also changed. For example, we have a couple more telehealth components that are involved in some of the clinical rotations, um, as well as some of the um, rounds and things like that. Um, some of that has also been converted to Zoom. So um, unfortunately, not everything is back to normal just yet. Uh, we still have a couple of online components to our clinical education, but I think that um, in the interest of uh, keeping everyone safe and not also keeping our patients safe, that uh, the administration and the staff at Hopkins are, are looking really closely at how we can make sure to combine clinical education uh, and still meet those curricular goals as well as keeping everyone safe at the same time. So um, hoping that in the next couple of months, uh, potentially we can move back to more of our normal structure for clinical education. Yeah, thank you, Jody. A lot of uh, really important points that you brought up there. And uh, especially, I guess, this year we've seen a lot of uh, increased people applying to medical school because they've been inspired by some of the stories they've heard about you know, frontline workers on the pandemic. And I think a lot of what you said would be really important for them to know. And a lot of what everyone so far has said as well. So thank you all. And then Lucy, uh, as a fourth year, how have your experiences sort of changed and how do they align with your expectations? Yeah, so as a fourth year, I think uh, my clinical clerkships were a little bit less affected since I was near the end of my clerkships instead of near the beginning like Jenny was. Um, so fortunate on that front. But um, right now at this time uh, in December, I would be done with my it, on Before COVID, I would be done with clerkships. Uh, I'd be applying to residencies, probably flying around the country uh, for meeting residencies and uh, seeing a bunch of hospitals having interviews and having a more relaxed fourth year. Uh, like Jenny said, because of COVID, our clerkships got pushed back three and a half months. And so during that time, like Jenny said, we had virtual rotations. I studied for step two. Um, and when I got back, I was able to kind of get back on my feet for my pediatrics clerkship and my, my sub-I, my sub-internship. But that being said, having everything pushed back meant I'm also currently trying to finish up my clerkships um, and while also applying for residency. Um, uh, for us, grades were also came from, went from pass-fail to, or sorry, went from graded from an honor system to a pass-fail system. So a lot of our grades, I probably had like five clerkships that were on an honor system and it got converted to pass fail. So on our transcript, it was very important for our for administration to explain why I went to pass fail. And I think our administration really uh, tried really hard to put on a transcript, like how it happened and why some people have pass fail for like a medicine rotation, whereas other people have like an honors for medicine rotation, which was quite important for people applying to residencies. Um, I'm so currently right now, in December, I'm on virtual interviews, which has been very, very interesting, especially since previously I've had a lot of the students have been mostly in-person interviews. So it's been a new thing for medical students applying to residencies, but also interesting and new for residencies to try to figure out ways to interview us. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about virtual interviews kind of now or later, but um, it's been very different and, and very interesting and definitely has affected fourth year of med school. 
Sure. Thank you so much, Lucy. Uh, I mean, since we're on the topic, we can continue a little bit and talk a little bit about if you're if you're okay with talking about how your residency application timeline or the logistics or mechanics have been shifted by the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so residency applications were due in October. Sorry, in I think it was due in September normally, and then this year it got pushed back a month. And then so a lot of the interviews were have been pushed back a month and. But that's not affecting match day. Match day is still the same. Uh, but it just allowed it just pushed a lot of residency programs to kind of read our applications faster and to determine interviews a lot faster. So that was one big change. Um, the pro of all this virtual interview is that we're saving a lot of money. Um, the only money that we're we had to pay was just to pay for applications, which is not as much as paying for all the flights um, and all the hotels that you had to pay to stay for like two or three days at the location, which has been a pro. Other pros is that whenever you get an interview for, for residency programs, you have to sign up really quickly because the spots get really taken up really quickly. This year is especially important, especially since I think a lot more people are applying for interviews and applying for spots. Uh, so it's still stressful in that sense in, in that you have to like sign up fairly quickly, but now this year you don't really, if you're applying for both, both the East coast and the West coast, you don't really have to plan for like what day your East coast interview is and when you can fly back to the West coast. So that's definitely been a lot easier. You can really just stay put. Um, and then you can also, another pro is you can really just have one pair of clothing. I've, uh, uh, and you save a lot of money on kind of just wearing one blazer every single interview and no one really knows. The con definitely, there's several cons to the virtual interview format. Um, I've, I'm currently one third of the way through all my interviews. And after speaking to a lot of the residents at all the interviews, a majority say that the biggest reason that they picked the program was from the pre-interview dinners that they had at their interview locations and getting to know the residents and seeing how they would vibe with the residents. That being said, a lot of the pre-interview socials that they had are now pre-interview Zooms. Um, and as you can imagine, it's super hard to socialize on Zoom um, like and it's been very interesting to see how schools are trying to approach this Zoom social. Some people are having full group sessions with like 50 applicants and a couple of residents. Some people are doing a more of like a Q&A session. Um, and then some are doing breakout sessions that are focusing on different themes, like living in a certain location, like how clinical uh, rotations are at that clerk at that rot rotation and hospital and seeing and allowing you to talk to more residents that way. So it's been very interesting to see how different programs are doing it, but it definitely doesn't beat sitting at a dinner and socializing over a couple drinks at a hot, at a restaurant the day before the interview. Um, but it, one of the nice things is that even though I'm still virtual and, uh, it's been, it's still pretty early in my interview season. I'm at a point in my interviews where I'm seeing the same people, very similar people over the Zoom session. So it's been nice to kind of socialize through with other applicants through the interview cycle um, over Zoom Zoom chat. So that's kind of a an interesting perk and, and a fun perk. But yeah, that's kind of the biggest shift that's changed for residency applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. And then uh, as a third year, Jenny, I'm curious to know, like, has anything in terms of how you might be strategizing or approaching your, like, I guess, upcoming residency application or the advice you've been given from your mentors and from faculty and administration? How has that, has that been affected at all by the pandemic? That's a great question, Rohan. I think that 
For us, the biggest thing as third years right now is um, probably that shortened timeline for our clinical experiences. So given that we started about three and a half months later than we normally would have with our clinical rotations, and now each of them are also shortened, it's a little bit more difficult to get that same maybe level of clinical exposure uh, within the year prior to starting uh, residency applications. Uh, it also means a little bit less time for electives. So while our core rotations cover things like surgery, internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, OBGYN and neuropsych, uh, as well as uh, emergency medicine, some other electives such as surgical subspecialties or other uh, electives as well um, that you could apply into for residency, those are a little bit harder to find time right now and find uh, time to carve out of your clinical schedule. Uh, in addition, some uh, of our professors who normally would hold these in-person electives, some of them are still not available as they're kind of coming up to speed again uh, with the pandemic going on. So I think that's definitely one potential worry for those of us um, who are third-year med students right now, finding time to get those clinical exposures and to really figure out what you want to do and where you want to apply into um, prior to the coming fall. Um, I think that another potential worry is also that with the pass-fail system that we have now, while it does take a lot of that weight off of our shoulders on a day-to-day -day perspective, there's also a concern that maybe it'll be harder for us as applicants next fall to stand out if we have just the pass-fail grading versus the honors, high pass, et cetera. So I think that there's definitely pros and cons to the current system that we have now, um, but hoping that we can definitely, um, with the coming uh, blocks, have more time as well to look further into electives if that's something we want to do and hopefully um, as time goes on uh, more of these spaces will also open up as well uh, to have those in-person clinical experiences outside of the core rotations. Yeah thank you so much Jenny. Um, uh, everyone has sort of talked about this a little bit so far because a lot of med school time is spent seeing patients in various capacities so I'm curious to know how uh, your interactions with patients have changed? You know, do you get a chance to talk to them about how they may be affected by the pandemic? What are those like conversations like? What are their, you know, what are their views? What might be their concerns? Um, uh, maybe we can start with Harry for this one. Amazing question. So I think, you know, I, I've seen a, a big shift in how I talk to patients over, over the course of the pandemic. We returned to seeing patients uh, at the beginning of the fall, but me and a few friends started a program over the summer to call by phone um, with preceptors at risk, uh, you know, older adults who, you know, on behalf of their primary care provider. And during that time, I mean, it was wonderful to get to talk to people, but it really was a lot about how people can stay safe. Um, you know, what people should do if they can't get to their doctors and have chronic, you know, health conditions that they need following up on or medicines that they need refilled, sort of filling in the gaps for um, what, was, what was set aside. Then in the fall, I started seeing pretty much every Friday uh, COVID follow-up patients by telehealth. So people who my preceptor had has on their docket who tested positive and man has it been hard because so many people are even when they have coded 
just don't know about the disease. Like people do not know what it means to isolate. People get tons of misinformation about testing. People would be, I've had people scream at me that it was a false positive and they shouldn't have to isolate. I've had people demand to have another test to prove that they're negative, even though we know that that's not really the way the disease works. And, you know, those conversations have actually been emotionally somewhat harder for me than conversations with people who have COVID and are, you know, experiencing really bad symptoms or who have post-COVID syndrome. I mean, because those, that second group is, is what we came here to do, right? It's caring for patients. It's helping them. It's trying to understand what, what would be best for them. The first group is, is a level of kind of combativeness that I really did not expect having as a medical student. Maybe, you know, later on, if someone, you know, didn't want to have a surgery that they, that, you know, was important, but I, it was not something that I expected I would have to be doing, uh, you know, this, this year. And so it's really taught me a lot about um, temper, watching how my preceptor handles it when someone is screaming at her. Um, and also, interestingly, it's, it's also been kind of the first time that I felt a little bit of clinical confidence. You know, I have a ton of imposter syndrome in medicine, but what's really interesting is I think, you know, COVID is a disease that clinicians talk about all the time that we don't know anything about it, right? Because it's new. But I feel like it's a disease that I know the most about in medicine because it's something that I've been hearing about and learning. So it's kind of the only disease that I feel comfortable talking with a patient about compared to all the other things that we see, you know, on a slide or two in a PowerPoint. Um, because I'm immersed in it, right? I'm immersed in it in the news and online and whatnot. So it's, it's been interesting that way to have something where I can feel like I can give, you know, a little bit of advice to someone, obviously with my preceptor there and whatnot, but, um, so it's, it's just changed things and it's made me even more sure that, you know, science communication and how we teach patients is just as, if not more important than what we do to treat people. Right. Thank you so much, Harry. And uh, uh, I guess next we can talk with Jenny. Uh, Jenny's played a big part in COVID Up to Date, so she definitely has a little bit of a sense of the importance of science communication. That's what we try and do with the Instagram page. So, um. Yeah, I can talk a little bit more about sort of um, my patient interactions to date. So um, I will preface that uh, at least for now, third year medical students, um, as well as uh, I believe fourth year medical students, Lucy can correct me on that if that's not the case. Um, but we haven't been uh, specifically allowed to care for uh, COVID, known COVID positive patients or PUIs to date, although um, that policy is very soon changing for the more advanced clerkship students, um, according to a recent announcement from our administration, uh, given the amount of data that we've had on safety of using PPE when working with patients who have positive uh, are, who are positive for COVID. Um, so that being said, um, I've been mostly caring for patients uh, on teams where uh, these patients are already have a negative test or are not, not known to be suspected for um, COVID-19. But I think that for me in transitioning for preclinical to clinical work, 
Um, one of the things that I was thinking more about was sort of using uh, your physical presence um, in, in, in a patient's room um, to provide comfort and care for that patient. So one worry for me when I was first transitioning to clinical rotations during the pandemic was how would I be able to build rapport and like comfort, um, for example, when shaking hands and things like that these days is pretty much taboo. Um, so things like would I be able to still, you know, put a hand on a patient's shoulder as they're going through a procedure or like hold their hand if they're scared, things like that. But I think that what um, I found really with the clinical rotations is that um, it's still actually been uh, something that's still come naturally that, you know, we are human and there, there's a lot of understanding, I think, um, when it comes to providing comfort for each other. And um, we are wearing PPE, so we are being safe with patients. So I think that um, something that has come up, though, with patients is that, um, especially now as you know, surgeries are going around the country, that our visitor policy has changed over the past couple of months. So whereas in the beginning of the pandemic, pretty much no visitors or family at the bedside were allowed, whereas they were previously, you know, major players in um, a patient's care and, and, and the provision of, um, you know, help when it came to like decision-making, especially for those who are very ill. So I know that's been really difficult for patients not being able to have that same level of support at the bedside. Um, and so over the course of the pandemic, um, as things sort of lightened up a little bit more in the summer and early in the fall, uh, we were able to lighten our uh, patient uh, visitor policy a little bit such that one provider or one uh, patient support giver was able to come into the hospital, but now that has all changed again. So um, I think for me with caring for patients, um, that's something that I definitely worry about making sure that they're having that support um, at the bedside that they can. And so um, I know there are a number of projects going on to provide patients who maybe, for example, don't have a cell phone or don't have a way to contact their uh, loved ones uh, via device, or there are some programs that are helping to provide uh, a greater distribution of those devices to be able to have patients contact their families um, and, and get that support during this really difficult time. But um, I think overall, that's the main thing that I've really noticed in terms of patient interactions uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, thank you so much. And again, you brought up some really insightful points. Like I hadn't even considered sort of the changes in physical body language that you kind of have to adapt to with the pandemic and sort of the social distancing requirements, but that's a really profound point. And then Lucy, as a fourth year, do you want to share a little bit about your experiences with patients and how they've changed? Yeah, I completely echo like everything that Jenny said, kind of her experiences were very similar to mine. Um, and yeah, as a fourth year, I still am not uh, similar to the third years, not seeing any COVID patients, but um, like she said, the advanced clerkships will probably start seeing COVID patients and I'm heading into the ICU in January. So I'll probably be experiencing that on my surgical ICU. So that'll be a very interesting transition. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to happen. I'm definitely going to be very cautious going back home and seeing my roommates again, but that'll be a discussion to be had with my roommates and kind of who else I see in the future uh, in January. But during COVID, I was mostly in the wards and not super outpatient. Um, so like inpatient, I was in the pediatrics ED. I saw that for me, I saw that less patients were coming in. And so for, for myself, I, I wasn't seeing that many 
I wasn't allowed to see that many people. Um, one, because they were less patients coming in and any of the patients who were coming in into the pediatrics ED were either coughing or feeling sick. And that would be considered a patient under investigation um, for COVID. And so because of that, I, I wasn't allowed to see a lot of the patients in the pediatrics emergency department. Um, all That also said, um, rounds for us in the hospital were also different. Um, and rounds, I think, are very important for patients to get to hear about how the team for the hospital team is kind of managing their care. And especially in the psych hospital, psych rounds, the social worker is very important in managing the care. The nurses is, are also very important. But on my psych rotation, the rounds, um, we couldn't have everyone in the rooms because of social distancing. And so you could tell, and we had them actually on iPads and set. So like everyone else on the team was on iPads. Um, but you could just tell sometimes when the patients were like, oh, where's my social worker? Or where's my nurse? And they were just obviously missing the people in the room. And we we're like, oh, they're on the iPad. And the patients are like, why aren't they in the room? And we, it was just like explaining to them kind of our social distancing restrictions. But that was definitely something that I saw affect patients' care um, and also kind of our learning and seeing patients around the hospital. Um, and then also kind of what Jenny said, it's we definitely had to wear PPE and that made it very hard to connect with patients. A lot of the patients couldn't hear us through our masks, couldn't tell who we were in our masks, and couldn't tell that we were the same people taking care of them every single day. And like, it's also very daunting, you know, as a patient, seeing people in a mask and in a face shield and in full gowns, it's hard to see that we're inside, like smiling and being happy with them. And to them, we're just, it just looks like we're like, our eyes are kind of all they see. So definitely taught the importance of patient interactions and trying to figure out ways to be connected to patients uh, and to make them feel like they are, in fact, being like, very taken care of by us and that we really care about them. Um, and then also just, it definitely affected uh, not having patients, families in the room. Like Jenny said, I think uh, taught me the importance of how families are so important to patients care. We had a patient who really needed to get convinced that he needed to get nutrition in order to get out of the hospital. And the only way that he, we could convince him to get nutrition uh, was to talk to his family. And we got his family on the on FaceTime every single morning and tried to convince him. But in the end, like whenever the family stopped being on the phone call, uh, he would revert back to not wanting the nutrition. So in the end, we were, we had to fight with the, we just like had to kind of figure out ways and advocate for the patient's family to come into the hospital. So that the only way was to get like the family in there and convince the family to convince a patient to get the nutrition, but you can just imagine how this would have been so much easier without COVID um, and having the patient's family in the room in general. So, and I think another interesting thing to note is that for me, especially since my, my experience has been mostly in the hospital and not super outpatient, is that for a lot of these patients, although COVID is very big and very uh, important in the, in like the medical field right now, a lot of them uh, aren't as concerned about COVID as they are about the other complications that are bringing into the hospital. Like a lot of these patients are uh, like suffering from very, like very dis uh, distressing like uh, diseases and 
symptoms. Uh, they're coming in for like colon cancer or like colon metastasis, or they just had a major operation. So like COVID right now is not on their biggest mind um, in the hospital, but definitely is something to mention once they leave the hospital and kind of how to take care of their health after the hospital, because obviously they're going to be at higher risk. But um, a lot of the patients in the hospital, this is, it's very interesting that it's just, this is not kind of the biggest thing that's on their mind right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. Those are some really powerful stories you brought up. And I think it's it's really important to have perspective as to you know, how different people, what could be on their minds and that it's not always COVID. And you're absolutely right about that. Um, I haven't forgotten about you, Terrence. Uh, I know as a first year, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you will start seeing patients after the holidays. Is that correct? Yes, I think that that is still the plan as far as I know. Um, we're going to be starting the um, longitudinal courtship in January. So I'm excited because that, I think, yeah, that would be my first like in-person patient experience. Awesome. Uh, I'm curious to know for you, what has, have your views on the role of a doctor kind of changed as a result of the pandemic? And how are you carrying that notion with you as you go into the clinic for the first time? And what do you think about the way patients might view you and the other providers that they might encounter? Yeah, I think um, with the COVID pandemic, something that I was that I had not thought about before was, um, I guess I used to just always think that the physicians, nurses, and the staff who work in, in the ED, they're like our frontline, frontline workers um, handling our day-to-day emergencies. But with COVID, it's very much... It seems very much so that um, sort of sort of any physician, um, healthcare worker is 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 a frontline worker because just um, many of them during the pandemic have pitched in to help take care of all the sudden surge of surges of patients coming into the hospital, and so emphasis on patient education is important. Like I think um, what Harry mentioned before, there's a ton of disinformation out there. And so um, I think right now it's really important for physicians to be the conduit of, of, of accurate information, um, even more so than, than before. And to- yeah, those are great points. And I think, I think you have a very like, interesting you know, approach to how things are changing. And it's, I assume it's going to be pretty difficult to kind of hit the ground running once you start clinic in this sort of alternate reality that we're currently living in. So. I think it's going to be a great learning experience, though. Uh, so we've all talked a lot about patient care, and it's obviously patient care is super important for the role of a physician or any healthcare practitioner. And uh, however, I'm still, you know, I want to know a little bit about what you all are doing for your own self-care, because that's also equally important. You know, uh, physician burnout is is a chronic problem, and especially in light of the pandemic, there are being reports of more and more physicians feeling less fulfilled by the work they're doing. So I'm wondering if each of you want to share a little bit about what you're doing to kind of, you know, uh, help yourself and also kind of build and sustain communities that you have with your friends, your family, your classmates, or other professional colleagues you may have. So Terrence, do you want to talk a little bit about what that's like as a first year? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of that um, that I've experienced just because all of our lectures have been over Zoom and Sometimes like this past week, I've had a day where um, I started on Zoom at nine o'clock and didn't really finish till five. So it's just been a lot of screen time in front of the computer. Um, And so 
I, I do agree. Self-care is especially important. It's always important, but even more so now. Um, for me, some of the things that I do, I try to make sure that I still go and work out just to take a break from the screen and to sort of de-stress. At the same time, um, I uh, like just our class in general has been trying to get to know each other the best that we can and um, to do so safely. And so um, during this past semester, um, I've been able to safely meet with some of them at the park during different times, which has, I think, helped give that sort of personal and human touch to my first year experience. Um, I also think many people are also just willing to jump on a FaceTime or Zoom call to meet people, which has been helpful. I also think just like the small things are important. So like um, at the beginning of the semester when we were able to go in person to, um, to do the in-person cadaver dissections, that was just a chance for students to sort of walk together to the um, medical education building and taking advantage of that, you know, checking in with them, how are they doing, share how you're doing. That was really helpful to, I think, form the, that social bond that you would usually um, have, I think, a much easier time doing as a first year medical student. Um, something, something else that I've done, too, is just like... Um, when I'm on a Zoom, so like, I guess this is like while you're doing virtual um, class, like when you're in a breakout room, like before you start discussing whatever question that you're supposed to be discussing, sort of just check in with, with your classmates and friends, just like see how they're doing. And I think a little goes a long way in that sense, especially as first year medical students where you're sort of starting from scratch. <laughs> um, the whole class hasn't been together ever. So um, yeah, trying to do the small things and keep, uh, keep the sort of de-stressing habits that you've had before to keep doing them. Yeah, that's really nice. Uh, thank you, Terrence. Harry, what, what are you doing for your self-care and connections? And yeah, so this is, this is an interesting one. I think, you know, there are things that I do for kind of the care of everyone including me which don't always feel good right but i think um we need to really take a a strong look at where medical students are spending their time and energy and effort and i think there are a lot of things that medical students and and all physicians and everyone in healthcare does that that might not um be for the best we have a lot we have a lot of stigma. We have a lot of people who do not get the support they need to get through school. And I think, you know, that has become especially clear to me during this time. And so doing that sort of work has been, I wouldn't say it's self-care because it's hard and it's, um, and it can be contentious when you're talking to someone who doesn't understand it. But I think it's, it's self-care in the sense that we're caring for our community. Um, and then for my own kind of self-care, I think, you know, I, one thing, one really good thing that has come out of this has been getting to know medical students and physicians at other schools that if things weren't online, I don't think I really would have done. Like my first year, I didn't talk to people, you know, unless I knew them from beforehand, I didn't talk to people from other schools or hospitals. And like, I now have really close friends that are residents or fellows, you know, at different stages in training than I am, who I'm learning a tremendous amount from just about like what it's like to go through medical school. And these are people that I've, you know, never met in person and, you know, might not ever meet in person, but 
Um, that's kind of the beauty of, of the internet and FaceTime and whatnot. And just talking to them about, you know, what they were going through and, and all that. So I think that's been one thing that I've, that I've really loved from this. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Um, uh, Jenny, how about you? Yeah, so similar to Terrence, I think for me, what's really gotten me through med school is one, you know, my surrounding community of classmates and friends, um, and then also um, being able to exercise and um, also uh, pay attention also to my uh, physical well-being on top of my mental and emotional well-being. So for me in the pandemic, that's actually meant um, being able to combine the two activities. So for me... um, doing outdoor socially distance activities has been a really great way for me to both keep up with my physical um, and mental health. Um, So for example, in the summer and through the fall, I was able to play tennis in the park with a friend um, every week or so. And then also um, biking outside uh, with a couple of classmates, um, going for walks through the park or down to the water. So um, I really really liked being able to combine the two in terms of social activities, but also uh, physical activities as well in a a socially distanced way. Um, Definitely will be a little bit more of a challenge as we're heading into the colder winter months, but I am hoping that um, I can still keep up um, physical activity uh, regardless to continue staying on top of uh, my mental well-being. Um, And I will say that um, one of our classmates in the fourth year class, she actually started um, a Hopkins School of Medicine fitness challenge, which has been really exciting to follow along with and see what everyone's been up to both um, in Baltimore and then also since a lot of folks are also at home um, and get to see what kind of outdoor activity that they've been up to as well. Um, So I think that's been a great way to build community as well, because uh, usually in the fall, we have something called the Olympics, um, which is a a friendly competition among the four different colleges uh, in that. Uh, each of us in the class are split up into, so there are about 40, uh, I guess 30 people um, in each class will be in one college. So we have four of them total. Um, and this competition is usually involving, you know, relays and um, other fun activities like that, trivia um, and art battle, et cetera. But given the pandemic, it's not something that we've been able to do this year, but um, this has been another way to continue doing this sort of friendly virtual competition and uh, continue to build community that way. So um, I've been really enjoying that as well. Yeah, that's super nice, Jenny. And I'm guilty of not having contributed any minutes to the, the fitness challenge so far, but hopefully that will change soon. We still have a month, Rohan, so I'm waiting for you. Okay, thank you, Jenny. And then last, uh, Lucy, how about you? Yeah, um, I think of all, like, I'm super, I've been super grateful, especially after hearing everyone's stories that, like, I had those three years prior to the COVID to kind of build that friendships um, through my classmates, which has been super helpful. Um, So, but that being said, like, this year definitely has been difficult in terms of just keeping up with my classmates and figuring out what everything's up to. Uh, that being said, I've gone on several social distance walks, we've talked to hangouts, um, done a bunch of virtual catch-ups um, and found different ways to virtually catch up with friends. And it's been very interesting to see kind of what is out there that you can virtually do with other people. So like I've watched a bunch of Netflix shows at the same time with other people. Um, so that's been really nice. Would also recommend checking out like the Airbnb events. Uh, that are being hosted by Airbnb people, but you can do like socially distanced, like they like teach a cooking class and you can do it with your other friends um, over the screen. So I'm I'm doing 
uh, a paint night with a friend of mine. So they're kind of taking paint night over Zoom, which is super cool. You just buy your own paint, uh, but you just follow their instructions over Zoom. So uh, definitely finding really cool, interesting things. Um, also doing like crosswords every single night with friends over over uh, virtually. So just like trying to keep up with friends consistently through through interesting and unique ways uh, has been kind of the best way to keep in touch with friends and being uh, being mindfully healthy as well. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Lucy. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot now about a lot of the changes that have happened in our professional lives, our kind of educational lives, as well as our personal lives. Um, with all these changes, are there any in particular that you want to maybe see stay permanent even after the pandemic ends? Are there any that you kind of want to go back to normal as soon as possible? Uh, can, we can start with Terrence. Yeah, I think um, probably the most obvious one, the one that we may all like to be reverted would be the resumption of in-person activities. I would say I, I want to be able to meet my classmates, all of them in person and meet the faculty and just being able to talk face to face, that would be really nice. Um, and also just to see my friends again and be able to travel um, at the same time. I think there are some things, some some positive things that came from the COVID pandemic, even though perhaps a, a smaller amount, but with a lot of the lectures being recorded now, many of them were re-recorded. Re and I think the quality um, was improved just like because they're more clear and uh, the slides are, um, the lecture videos sort of track with the slides. And so I think in that sense, um, I think those types of recordings are, are worth keeping um, for, for medical students, um, whether or not you um, resume the, the, the in-person lectures, I think those recordings would be nice um, to keep. And, um, and yeah, I think that just represents like an improvement in, in the quality. Yeah, thank you, Terrence. Harry? What about you? What, what would you like to stay the same? What would you like to change? Yeah, so I think um, for a very long time in education, but especially medical education, there have been these assumptions that something can't be done, an excuse can't be made, an accommodation can't be given because we don't have the tech, it's not been done that way, it would change the way you're taught medicine. It would make you not the same kind of doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that is a huge piece of what leads to burnout, right? When, when people can't go um, to a family wedding because they have required class that there's no way to do virtually, that leads them to not be able to have um, family time and connection and, and being there for people around you, right? And having a wellness lecture is not going to fix that. Um, you know, individuals who live with chronic pain or other disabilities have been asking for decades to be able to take a day and do class from home. And they've always been told, you can't do that, that, that we don't have that tech. And now we see that we do have that tech, right? That is possible. If someone wants to go on a family vacation, you can bring your laptop and you can zoom in. And if we have the willpower and if people, you know, administrators are, um, understand that it is all doable. 
And I think that 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 can be, you know, I'm not saying, I certainly am not saying that I want, you know, med med school to continue virtually. I am desperate to get back to in-person lectures. Part of me is actually scared that they're not going to resume in-person lectures because, you know, it's a lot of extra time for professors to do when now they already have videos recorded that they could use. And I, I really value being there in person for a lecture. But we need to keep that flexibility, right? We need to take care of each other and ourselves and, and especially students. And that's not going to be the same for everyone, right? Just like I really desperately want to go back to in-person class. There are people who that just presents unnecessary barriers for. And I think those barriers are going to increase as, you know, COVID is not going to end with a bang. It's going to, it's going to trickle away, hopefully, right? So there are going to be people who still need to stay with family members who are dealing with after effects. You know, we need, there, there, there's a lot that, that we can do if we commit to keeping that flexibility. And I just hope it happens. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you, Harry. Uh, Jenny? Yeah, to echo Terrence and Harry, I think that some um, positive things that have come out of the pandemic have uh, included the expansion of telehealth. So for example, being able to provide these services to more underserved communities, allowing providers to cross state lines essentially over this virtual format to be able to provide patient care uh, to more distant patients. I think that's a really positive thing. Uh, and I've heard in the news sort of when this telehealth um, sort of system was being rolled out more broadly that it's almost like the, um, you know, Pandora's box has been opened. So I think in a, in, in a way this could potentially be positive for uh, patients in the future who might not have as easy of an access to uh, in-person healthcare services and being able to expand um, more coverage broadly um, across the nation. So I think that's definitely one positive thing. I think also with um, medical education that the recording of lectures definitely is something that, um, as Terrence mentioned, uh, can potentially increase the efficiency of education as well, especially as these recordings are being more directed towards online specifically. So not just having those recordings of in-person lectures from previous years uh, being reused year after year, but really targeting uh, this new method of education, I think, can potentially provide a little bit more efficiency when it comes to um, adding lectures as well to clinical education. Um, and so uh, those are the two main things I think that have been positive with COVID. Um, I am curious to see how long uh, mask wearing will be in effect even after the surges have um, declined in COVID. Um, because I think that if there's one single tool that we can point to that has reduced transmission of the virus, it has been mask wearing. And so I wonder, like, you know, even after we have an effective vaccine, even after COVID has decreased in the community and community spread has um, essentially gone away, maybe months from now, maybe even years from now, it's hard to say, but I wonder how long mask wearing will be um, held in hospitals, um, given that it is such an effective tool. So maybe mask wearing will also be a thing during flu season, um, making sure that healthcare providers aren't transferring flu between each other, between patients, et cetera. Um, even with a flu vaccine in place. Um, that's something that I'd be curious to follow along with, uh, with the mask wearing in the hospital setting, as well as maybe in uh, public public spaces as well, in, in transportation, for example. Yeah, I cannot agree with that enough, Jenny. I mean, I think, you know, I'm really hoping that not only do people, you know, obviously start and continue wearing masks right now, 
and as this ends, but but also, you know, with flu. And one thing that I think is is really interesting about it is, you know, a lot of people who who want to or have to wear masks before COVID, either because they're, you know, they've had a transplant or they're immunocompromised for some other reason, or, you know, they just don't like getting sick, have really, you know, at least in, in America, gotten weird looks. And, you know, it's viewed as like, we should, you know, stay away from them and just horrible, you know, beliefs that exist in our community. And other countries do not have that, right? Other and and those countries have also now done better in this pandemic because of that, you know, idea of being okay with keeping yourself safe and keeping others safe. And so translates to understanding that doctors get sick and doctors should not be encouraged slash demanded to still work in hospitals when they are sick, right? That's been like a part of our culture for so long that, you know, if you, unless you're, you know, hospitalized, residents are expected to come in and work. And that just propagates the spread of of flu and other viruses and, and whatnot. And so, you know, to not have that happen, we certainly need to, you know, hire more workers and, and, and pay people better and whatnot. But I think, um, it just, we just need to re-examine this, this, you know, toxic idea of strength in, in physicians that we should be able to work no matter what. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny and Harry. And then uh, Lucy, uh, what about you? What are some of the changes you want to see stay and some that you don't want to see, so, see stay? Yeah, I completely, for things I want to see changed and stayed completely echo everything that people have said. In fact, I made some bullet points and I feel like all of you guys hit every single thing that I put down, but kind of things that I guess I can maybe add is just uh, for residency applications, given how much I've saved for interviews and how much of a financial burden it is for people to even apply for residencies uh, and uh, go to the next step of medical education, I, I think that having some part be completely virtual is definitely important and I think could be beneficial for a lot of people, but maybe figuring out ways to allow people to come to schools, maybe through second looks or having certain populations, subpopulations of people and applicants to go to the schools, I think would be very beneficial, but having kind of the first screen or several screens um, be completely virtual, I think would prevent a lot of people uh, to save or help a lot of people to save some money moving forward. Um, and completely agree with like Harry and like the whole technological innovations that the schools have come up with. I think it definitely, it's time to modernize medicine and how we uh, educate medical students. And I think now is the best time. Um, COVID has created a lot of ways that we we're thinking outside of the box of like how we can creatively educate students so that we're more engaged, even if we're not in person. So definitely um, is very good and things that we should keep and continue thinking forward because it definitely is the time to think about new ways. Um, and yeah, agree. Like there's several things we should revert, but I think those have definitely been mentioned by all the people in the podcast. So. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. Necessity is the mother of invention. And so thank you all for, you know, being on the podcast. I just have one final question. I wanted to ask of all of you really quickly. Uh, do you have any particular role models, like whether or not it's in the medical field or even outside of medicine, like who, who are the people that have been role models for you during this time and 
what are they doing that you kind of want to model yourself? We can start with Terrence. I think somebody who has come to like the for forefront of my mind, but also I think of many people's um, be Dr. Anthony Fauci, just because he's been, I think, a great role model during a challenging time representing public health, medicine, physicians on a national stage, um, representing us to the public and the government and being able to work um, at that level and um, trying to um, transmit a very coherent and urgent message to everybody. It's not easy and especially dealing with um, the uncertainties and um, rapid developments of the pandemic is challenging. And so I think um, it's just an eye opening to see the roles that um, healthcare providers can have. Um, and it's really just inspiring what he did. Yeah, thank you, Terrence. I have a feeling you might have stolen the answers for some of our other <laughs> responders, but nonetheless, uh, Harry, what about you? Yes, yeah, so now that now that Terrence took mine, I'm gonna um, cheat a little bit and talk about a group, uh, and that is Primary Care Chat, uh, which is a group that's run by, uh, among other people, Dr. Colleen Christmas, one of my mentors, Stuart Hopkins, and um, I actually discovered Primary Care Chat at the very beginning of this pandemic. And, you know, it's every Thursday night on Twitter and talking about, you know, issues in primary care. And I have relied so much on, on the attendings and residents in this group um, who really talk about how hard being a physician is and how important it is to challenge yourself and what you're learning and, and growing even you know, long after you have finished your training, um, you know, really embodying that idea of lifelong learning, uh, not just around, you know, clinical trials and best practices and, and the pandemic, but also, you know, tackling, you know, disability justice, which is something I care a lot about, talking about racial equity and race-based medicine and, and how people, you know, even who are late in their career can, can learn about these things matter so much for the the people and communities that we serve and just you know it's been inspiring to see how people can continue to be so committed to learning and teaching throughout their entire career yeah thank you so much harry jenny I totally agree with um, what Terrence and Harry have said so far that really there is a strong responsibility for um, us as future physicians and then also current physicians to be able to share accurate information, especially during this time when we have so many different competing sources of information, definitely a lot of misinformation out there about the virus. So to be able to share accurate information, but also I think it's really important to be able to clearly communicate the uncertainties that we still have about the disease. So. Um, since it has been, you know, a, a nine to 10 month long discovery process and really being able to share that with patients that there are things that we still don't know about the virus, but here's how we're going to get there. Um, so I think that applies for the virus, but then also for other diseases as well. Um, so for me, one of my role models uh, today and, and for many years really um, has been my primary care physician um, here in California. So uh, quick shout out to Dr. Saxon if you do listen to this podcast, but um, something that I so admire and what my primary care physician did was that during the um, pandemic, um, and she's been sending out a weekly newsletter to her patients, 
um, synthesizing the, the newest stories about the virus, where to get COVID testing, the science of the vaccines, current developments and treatments, and really distilling those major components of what we know about the virus and what we still don't know about the virus and how to stay safe during this time. So I think that being able to sort of leverage your knowledge as a physician and the vast amount of influence you have in terms of being able to reach so many different people that you have been following with and following their healthcare for many years. I think that primary care physicians especially have a really um, important role here to play to be able to care for patients um, longitudinally and then also to provide uh, that source of um, that source of truth and, and information, uh, especially as we're learning more about the virus and moving forward here. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny. That was, that was an amazing answer. And then last, Lucy, you want to conclude us with this? Yeah, sure. I completely echo kind of that, especially with the, the characteristics that we look in a role model um, in the medical field during this time. Um, and because of that, I think for me, there's a couple of people on social media, I think are uh, have been important during this pandemic. Examples of, are like Ashish Jha from Brown or Vivek Murthy, who is one of the leaders in the COVID task force for Biden. Um, and also like Bob Wachter, who's uh, part of UCSF, but they're very prominent on like social media, especially Twitter to explain facts about COVID and just put the facts out there as scientists um, and, but are also public educators and doing public service. And, uh, and that's super important to me and also kind of the reasons why I was one of the people who started the COVID up-to-date social media campaign to try to be a medical student, but also try to be a public educator at the same time and combat misinformation. So those are kind of the role models and people and characteristics of people that I look up to during this pandemic. Yeah, thank you so much. I guess I will say that the four of you have been exceptional role models for me. It's uh, it's really heartwarming to hear all your different experiences and sort of you know, many of the ideas I echo with like trying to take medicine and bring it, make it more accessible to people that might not have an insane med medical background to come, come from. And I think uh, it makes me very optimistic about the future of medicine and of medical education. And I hope that the listeners will agree that, you know, the future is bright, even though there's a small hurdle that we're going over now, I think we'll come out of it better and more prepared to take better care of our patients. And whether or not it's in the hospital, or whether or not it's via a telemedicine visit, I think there's a lot of learning we can apply. And I wanted to thank all four of you, Terrence, Harry, Jenny, and Lucy, for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. Uh, you know, we did this podcast episode through a Zoom call, which might not have been the way you would have done it before COVID. So I think uh, I really appreciate that you guys took the time to share your knowledge. And yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, I wish you all a safe and joyful holiday season.